Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. Gird your loins. The race for president is about to begin. If you thought 2019 would offer a respite from campaign politics, think again. With the sitting president inching toward a legal precipice, Democrats and Republicans are likely to spend the coming year gearing up for the 2020 presidential contest. For Democrats, the already crowded field of likely candidates seems to get more crowded by the day. In all, more than a dozen Democrats appear ready to vie for the top spot, with some having already announced the formation of exploratory committees. Look for that number to explode. From Biden to Beto, it's going to be a full house. And for President Trump, incumbency is no guarantee that he won't face a primary brawl. Several Republicans have signaled their intent to challenge the president for the GOP nomination, most notably Ohio Governor John Kasich who has made a number of trips to early primary states in recent months? Or will Mitt Romney be recruited to run on a so-called unity ticket? Will a third-party ticket emerge? Anything could happen, and it's going to be a bumpy ride, so buckle up. Here's the deal. Get ready to hear this a lot. Democrats want to fall in love again. What it means is Democrats have a long history of falling for their candidates— from JFK to Gary Hart to Obama and Hillary. And as you can see, sometimes that works out, but sometimes they do better to think more practically with their heads instead of their hearts. This will be key next year. Will they fall in love too early with someone like Beto, the skateboarding progressive heartthrob who couldn't win his own state? Just ask President Lloyd Benson how that worked out. Or will they think strategically about who can actually beat Trump? Someone who can speak to the middle of the country and not just the coasts will know sooner than you think. All right, let me bring in CNN political commenta commentators, Democratic strategist Maria Cardona and Republican strategist Doug High. Let the games begin, my friends. <laughs> Welcome right. to Thunderdome. Yeah, they've already begun, unfortunately. I know. It's already underway. It's almost yeah. like we're late. Uh, okay, nevertheless, Maria, let's get the elephant of, in the room out of the way. Sure. Uh, is Hillary going to run? No. She okay, great. Um, <laughs> my follow-up to that is, I think the first Democrat to say, thank you to the Clintons, please be on your way, I think that first person would actually get a huge boost. Do you think that that could be someone like Kirsten Gillibrand, who's already sort of dipped her toe in that water mm -hmm. criticizing the Clintons? You know, Essie, uh, I don't know, and, and I don't know if that boost will be as high as some would think it is. I mean, Hillary Clinton, yes, you have a lot of people who want to say thank you and be on your way, but she still has a huge, very dedicated following around Maria, the country. Maria, she's selling tickets at her tour for like half price to, to, to half filled stadiums. I don't think it's actually risky for Democrats to just say the obvious, which is your time is over. Please go away. I don't know that there's a necessity to say that, Essie. Why would you want to say that and, and alienate because those voters who Because I think a lot of Democrats felt betrayed. Still, I think a lot of Democrats felt betrayed her. by the party who decided, who foisted Hillary 
on them instead of listening to the electorate. And but I think I it would think, go a long way into regaining some of that trust. But I, I think that the Democrat who is going to emerge is going to be someone who's going to be able to unite the party. And bring everyone by, in. Yeah. Exactly. Bring yeah. everyone I in. That. And I don't think there's a necessity to essentially do what you say by with words. You can do it with deeds by essentially focusing on the future, right, focusing we'll on all the new voters that we brought in into 2018, and focusing on the additional right, things that we here. need to do. Kirsten, if you're listening, you heard me. This is what you need to do. Um, Doug, so what should the RNC fear most on the other side? Is it a Beto? Is it a Biden? Or is it a woman? Well, I think the first thing they should fear is a Republican who may come in and not win the nomination. I think Donald Trump is as as close to a lock on this at this point as could be, given his approval with Republican voters. But if you can chip off a 10 or 20 percent, if you can play the Pat Buchanan role against uh, like he did against George H.W. Bush, that's a real concern. From them, yeah. I look at I look at fundraising and, and excitement on the base. We know that Democrats are more excited than Republicans, at least right now. Um, so I'm looking at a Beto who not just mm-hmm. not only just excites the base, but pulls in new voters and can talk to the middle of the country. Yeah. I also look at somebody like a Sherrod Brown who excites people mm-hmm. in the middle of the country as well, That's right. or a Kamala Harris. But I would say to the Clinton question, why I think it would be a mistake for a Democratic candidate to come out and say, your time is over, move on. Just like a lot of Democrats privately feel that way about Nancy Pelosi, publicly they don't get there because they can't. And with the Clintons, you might get a short sugar high within the media, but you'd have a lot of financial donors who who are shut off to you at that point. Well, Maria, let's talk about some of uh, the rules changes, because that Mm -hmm. will also uh, uh, impact Democrats navigating a a tricky primary. Talk about some of those important rules changes, like moving California up, for example. Sure. And for the reasons of full disclosure, as you know, I am a DNC member and I'm also a member of the Rules and Bylaws Committee, which actually were the ones who came up with these rules and approved them. The focus of all of these rule changes, including the primaries, and we don't know what all that will look like because states are still looking at what the the dates that they want to come up with and the calendar has not been set yet. Um, But the focus of all of that is to be as transparent as possible, to inject trust, which you kind of alluded to this, but Mm. voters lost a lot of trust in the process during 2016. And so this is going to be, I think, the most transparent and the most open primary process we have we have had up until now. And I think that's a good thing because it's going to make sure that all of the rules are are clear up front and that everybody is bound to them and bound by them. Yeah. And everybody knows what it is that they're going to have to do in well, order to win the primary. Well, and the, and, and the tricky thing is moving, moving California, for example, uh, makes it, Doug, maybe a little harder for a moderate uh, to win the primary because they're going to have to tack for, pretty, pretty far over to the left pretty early. Uh, but you remember back to 2016, President Trump didn't have to pivot ever in the general to win. He still but the hasn't. map, no, and he, have, he never will. But the map mm-hmm. and the math are different for him now. You talked about that a little bit in terms of maybe a, a, a primary challenge, just peeling some, some, some voters off. What does he need to do? Well, I, I think he, what he's going to do is, is stay the course of where he's been on pushing his accomplishments that are very popular with the Republican base, judges being probably first and foremost. And then secondly, what we've seen that this White House do so often, and this will be a campaign tactic as well, is essentially say whenever there's bad news, like uh, we've seen just over the past couple months with so many indictments and guilty pleas yeah. and so forth, to say these are not the droids you're looking for. And so as, <laughs> as we have talk about things that may take us away from the ball, our eye off the ball, Trump is very skilled with that. And that also plays very well with his base, which is why he can 
continues to do that. Doug, is this the year for a third party candidate? Well, there, there, there's a lot of talk about that, but every year has been the year for a third party yeah, right. candidate. 1992 uh, yeah. being probably the best example. There's been some talk about a Biden uh, Romney unity ticket. Yeah. That's one I may actually vote for. Uh, <laughs> but, but we talk about it a lot. Uh, the reality is the hurdles to getting there are very hard. That's all about ballot access, and that's a very difficult thing to do. We found the Biden Romney voter. It's Doug High. <laughs> all right, Maria Cardona. Maybe. Doug High. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tessie. Thank you. Happy holidays. You too. Uh, next, I ask a GOP senator about the intense political division in the Trump era and whether it can be repaired. And coming up, I'll speak to a former white supremacist about the rise of hate in America. It's been a busy year for the White House spin shop with falsehoods, fear-mongering, and outright lies coming from the president on a seemingly daily basis. Of course, Trump's comments are intended to scare and rally his base, but if you go by the results of the midterms, that strategy could have backfired. This is bigger than politics, though. The consequences reach far beyond the beltway. These types of comments inflame an already divided nation. We all seem obsessed on both sides with blaming Trump or Republicans or Democrats for why we are so angry and broken. Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, though, takes stock of the situation in his new book, Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. But he writes that our politics is broken because we're lonely. I sat down with Senator Sass and had him explain what he means by that. Take a look. So there's a lot broken in American politics, but I think most of the ramping tribalism we have in this moment is because politics is trying to fill a vacuum of the decline or the collapse of good tribes. So political tribalism is bad, to be sure. But to be tribal in a certain sense really means to have communities that you feel really invested in, that are thick, that are meaningful, that are lasting for you. Most of the happiness literature shows there are only about four things that drive whether or not people are happy. Do you have a nuclear family? Do you have a couple of deep friendships that are going to last? Do you have meaningful vocation? Do you have shared work? Do you have coworkers? Are you part of a cause bigger than yourself? And do you have a framework to make sense of death and suffering? Usually that means do you have a local worshiping community? Mm -hmm. All four of those things, family, friendship, lasting work and coworkers, and local worshiping communities, those are all heavily tied to place, to rootedness. And right now I think we're living through a digital revolution, which is creating the potential for constant rootlessness. Mm -hmm. And so I think the tension of our moment is rootedness makes you happy, and yet our iPhones are whispering to us, you can be rootless. And it turns out people get a lot less happy, they have a lot less durable relationships, and they end up statistically incredibly lonely. And then politics comes in and whispers, hey, if things are bad in your life, if you feel lonely, if you don't feel like you have thick community, let's at least have a common enemy. You can say the other guys are a bunch of bastards, and then you can be on your side of a political flight, fight and pretend that'll give you community. It doesn't really work. Mm. So you want us to look inward, which I think is the right prescription, but do you think that message can compete with our desire to point fingers? Yeah, great question. So there's a, a new research study out about three weeks ago called Hidden Tribes. Well worth your viewers looking it up. It divides America into about seven demographic segments. And one of the most interesting insights of it is there are two politically addicted demographics of Americans. There are about 8% on the far left that are addicted to politics all the time. And now there's a growing segment, about 6% on the right, uh, that's increasingly addicted to politics all the time. 8% plus 6%, that's 14 
Hmm. That leaves 86% of Americans that basically say, all you people are weirdos. Why are you so addicted to politics? Most people know that local community, where they're a member of the Rotary Club, where they work, where they're coaching Little League, knowing the people two doors down from them, the vast majority of Americans, I really believe, want their politics to try to do a smaller number of things, yeah. but do them with some urgency. Do an infrastructure bill that's actually cost-effective and stop trying to pretend you're going to find the line between good and evil between Republicans and Democrats, because normal people think all these people who are addicted to their political identities are weirdos. <laughs> well, to that end, you say you say social media, which has connected us with infinitely more people, has actually made us less connected. How so? Yeah, so it turns out if you go from five, 200 to 500 social media friends or 500 to 1,000 social media friends, you don't get any happier. If you know the person <laughs> who lives two doors down from yeah. you, though, yeah. statistically, you're much more likely to be happy. And guess what? If you're addicted to your iPhone and the average American checks our phone every 4.3 minutes, if you check your phone every four minutes, you're statistically less likely to know the person two doors from you, and yet knowing that person would make you happier. Hmm. So again, this rootedness and rebuilding local association neighborly America is highly correlated with what will make people happy and more political addiction, which is what a lot of us use the echo chambers on our social media yeah. to do, that won't make you happier. Well, as a, as a parent of a, of a young child, I was very interested in your thoughts on um, this like overscheduling of our kids and how hmm. all of their activities don't really take place in their own communities anymore. Uh, talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, so we have 17 and 14-year-old daughters and a 7-year-old boy, and we live in a 25,000-person farm town outside Omaha. And one of the really interesting things about living in a real place where you plan and hope to stay for a while is you start to get to know people across different socioeconomic classes, and you start to be engaged in local groups and little leagues where you're going to have these relationships over time. And it turns out that is correlated with happiness. And a lot of our achiever culture, and I want to confess that I've been guilty of trips in you you know, across the landscape at times in the past, as my wife and I, I think, you know, paid taxes in a dozen states in the first yeah. decade of marriage. Yeah. Um, your kids, if they're doing more and more achiever stuff that are far from your home with less relational thickness in your neighborhood, it ends up producing a lot fewer of the benefits that than people mm -hmm. think they will. And so in them, uh, I spent, you know, about just almost half the book is constructive with what do we find are the habits that are connected to happiness. And they tend to be connections that have to do with neighborhood thickness over time. Uh, finally, so what's your message to Republicans and Democrats who uh, want to make people afraid of their neighbors, whose, whose premise, whose exercise is to make people afraid? Yeah, it's the wrong way to think about what America needs. So in a free republic, you're always trying to build a shared sense of the future that says Washington isn't the center of the world. Washington is supposed right. to be a community of servant leaders that exist to maintain a framework for ordered liberty so that the actual communities of love and, and volunteerism and persuasion, not just joining your rotary club, but buying your mousetrap or joining your firm to build the better app, all of those things where people actually live, where they love Love, where they're raising those, their kids, that's what makes you happy for the future. And Washington should want to be a bunch of servant leaders who serve for a time in public life, have Washington do a limited number of big things, and then get the heck out of the way and go back home to where you have neighbors again. Right now we have this culture in both the Republican and the Democratic Party of people who go off to Washington, D.C., and they never really plan to go back home. Yeah. They think Washington's the center of the world and they're going to retire as lobbyists. There's a reason five of the seven richest counties in America now are the suburbs of Washington, 
D.C. where the lobbyists live, a river of money flows to that place. Yeah. And the American people are on to this. They, that's why there's collapsing distrust in our time, both in the types of people we have serving in politics, but also in the sense that we have less of the neighborly associational thickness that, as we explore in them, is what actually drives mm. happiness. Well, the book is Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal, and it's terrific. I, I would say it's mandatory reading for, for folks. Uh, Senator Ben Sass, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for the invite, Essie. Okay, coming up, are members of Congress underpaid? My next guest will make the case for a pay hike on Capitol Hill. And a bit later in the show, two years into it, what the media gets right and wrong about the Trump era. In the red file tonight, they represent you and yet powerful and wealthy lawmakers on Capitol Hill, some of whom are millionaires, may seem out of touch with the constituents they represent. But with a newly elected Congress on the horizon, first time lawmakers are facing the same difficulty many voters can relate to. They can't afford housing and their staff won't be getting pay raises. It's an issue that Washington Post columnist Paul Kane, who's covered the Hill for years, says Congress needs to figure out if it wants to govern and look more like the people it serves. In a recent column, Kane writes, without any course correction, only the wealthy will be able to afford to run for Congress and only the already well-off will be able to staff the House and Senate. Newly elected House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York recently told The New York Times she can afford D.C. housing until her $174,000 congressional salary kicks in. She says, I have three months without a salary before I'm a member of Congress, so how do I get an apartment? Those little things are very real. Well, I'm sure you'll figure it out, AOC, but it's even more real for congressional staffers. According to data compiled by the nonpartisan research company Legistorm, the media salary on the Hill is around $50,000. Now, that's a lot for a 20-something, but not for a 40-something mother of three. So is free housing for lawmakers the answer? Senior uh, congressional correspondent, columnist for The Washington Post, Paul Kane joins me now. So, PK, I think people will hear that and think, wait a second, free housing welfare for members of Congress? But they work for me. Tell me why you think it might be a good idea, though. I, I know that that's the initial public reaction is, gosh, these guys already get so many benefits. Why, why would we give them anything more? Um, well, look, one thing that gets lost in all this is there are about 100 lawmakers right now who are sleeping in their office, yeah. who convert their own offices into essentially one-bedroom apartments. We're already subsidizing those people. They're the ones who aren't paying 1500 or two grand a month for an apartment in D.C. because they're doing it on the taxpayer dime. Mm. Um, mm. So this is already happening in, a, in an indirect way. But we've got to try to get people from all walks of life, whether that means some incredible Marine who's just returned from a couple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, if he wants to serve or she wants to serve, but doesn't have a whole lot of money to yeah. do so, we need to be able to sort of widen the pool here mm. of talent. Well, and let's talk about how expensive Washington is. Uh, you uh. live there. I lived there. I mean, there is more wealth in a five-mile radius in D.C. And, and the Maryland and Virginia suburbs than there is in most states. Um, isn't it a sign that government has maybe grown too big, too bloated, too powerful when some lawmakers can't even afford to live there? You know, it, this has been the... 
the uh, long, long tail of the post 9-11 mm. military and technological expansion that has really burst all throughout D.C., Northern Virginia, and parts of Maryland. Uh, 20 years ago, I was living with five other guys in a townhouse on Capitol Hill, half a block from the Cannon House office building. Mm -hmm. Next door, there were five women, one of whom was future White House uh, Press Secretary Dana Perino, now over at Fox News. Mm -hmm. um, we were all paying probably about $350, $400 a month mm -hmm. for that. Those two houses are now worth 1.5 to $2 million. Right. You know what they don't do? They don't rent to 20-somethings. Right. So now you've got the financial pressures of, of trying to come up with $2,000 a month. If you're a member, you're making $174,000. That's true. But what if you live in New York and you've got to maintain a residence there? All of right. a sudden, you're at 2,000 a month, 2,000, 3,000 there. All of a sudden, your housing costs are really just destroying your entire budget, and that becomes another incentive for lawmakers to, you know what, leave and head downtown to K Street where it, they right. can make more money. Well, and let's talk about that because that's, that affects staffers as well. Um, oh, yeah. This growing trend, congressional staffers are you know, bailing for more lucrative private sector jobs. Now, that's always been a thing. Staffers reach a certain yeah. age and decide, I'd really like to start making money now. But what's the advantage? Because I know you've covered this. You know a lot of staffers. Um, what's the advantage of having staff, staffers on the Hill who know how the system works, who've been there for a long time, instead of a revolving door of 20-somethings coming in and out? What it does is it empowers it empowers all of us. It empowers the, the taxpayers, the constituents for that member. If that member of Congress has somebody who's worked on the Hill for 10 or 15 years, as opposed to somebody who's only there two or three years, then they can talk to the lobbyist who comes in and have a real back and forth on the issues of policy and where and how their, their members should vote on specific issues. Mm -hmm. But if, if you don't pay them enough to keep around the 35-year-old who just got engaged and is looking to have a family, if he has to run to downtown, she has to run downtown to K Street, then you're left with the 23 or 24-year-old who is just getting sort of pushed over by the lobbyist community, and it just becomes the revolving door begins to own Washington. Well, so, I mean, what we're talking about is, is public service, right? So on the yeah. flip side, how do we encourage people to get into politics without financially incentivizing it? I mean, it should not be a place to get rich. You're just talking about a place uh, to be able to afford to mm -hmm. do your job. Yeah, I you know look there's a uh, on the on the living front there is a old dorm for pages which no longer they don't have pages anymore on the house side it's two blocks away from the house office buildings they could for a pretty modest sum renovate that and probably create anywhere from fifty to a hundred small studio apartments charge them the members you know uh, 500 bucks a month or something a small stipend so that they could keep up with the costs of security and stuff like that um, to just give them an incentive to be able to serve with some sort of dignity without having to sleep in their office or to just think of it as a five to six year job before you I think you've got a, K. yeah I think you've got a, I, I think you've got a future PK in uh, <laughs> real estate flipping you've worked out all the details uh, before before I leave you talk about the uh, the fact that there haven't been uh, pay increases for staffers yeah. over time why has that gotten stuck okay so about 10 years ago the economy implodes. Uh, 
the Great Recession hits. There's bailouts for Wall Street, there's bailouts for the auto industry, and basically everybody, the lawmakers on Capitol Hill looked at one another and thought, we can't give ourselves a pay raise, we're so unpopular now, and so they basically froze member pay at that $174,000 level. Mm -hmm. And under, under sort of rules and precedents, staffers cannot make more than a member. They make about, the top ones make about $5,000 less. So that has just created, and, and it has stayed that way now for almost 10 years. Mm. So it's just created an overall flat line in the staff pay. So you're saying 50,000 is the median uh, salary now. Uh, t 10 years ago, it was 47,000 and change. Right. That's been, there's been almost no increase in, in staff pay as the cost of living here has probably doubled. Yeah. So how are you gonna, what are you gonna do? And you, what you end up seeing, they've got stats now, these Legistorm shows, the percentage of 30 and 40 somethings on the Hill is going down right. and 20 somethings are going up. You know, I think it's counterintuitive to think of members of Congress and their staffers as the yeah. little guy, but sometimes, you know, uh, you need to think outside of the box to figure out how to make all of this work better for us, for voters, for constituents. PK, yep. I appreciate your, uh, your column and your point of view on this. Thank you. Anytime. Okay, up next, we're two years into his presidency, but the media still isn't quite sure how to cover Trump. Will that change in 2019? I'll try to find out after the break. In just two years, President Trump has redefined the relationship between the White House and the press. What has traditionally been a respectful, if at times tense, relationship is now fully adversarial. For Trump, the media is the enemy. For the media, Trump is often the enemy of the truth. Between his constant antagonism of reporters and the never-ending stream of lies that flow from his mouth and his Twitter account, covering the Trump administration has been challenging. So should coverage of this president and his administration evolve as we head into a new year and shortly following it, a new election? Joining me for more on this is CNN chief media correspondent and host of Reliable Sources, Brian Stelter, and Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star, Daniel Dale. Um, Daniel, let me start with you. One approach in covering the president has been to ramp up our fact-checking. Now, you fact-check President Trump's every statement, whether it be uh, at a rally or an impromptu press avail or, or his tweets. What impact do you think that attention to fact-checking has? Well, at the most basic level, I think it, it results in more people getting accurate information. I think that the problem that I'm trying to address and others are trying to address is that people simply can't trust almost anything that comes from the mouth of the president and some of the people around them, uh, around him. And, and so, you know, even if they generally know that he's a liar, they're generally distrustful, they might not know how he's misleading them on a certain subject, on trade or immigration or the Mueller investigation or whatever. Um, and so I think there is a role for people like me and other journalists to, at every available opportunity, uh, correct misinformation with, with accurate information. So, um, Daniel, that, that is a, a noble cause. And obviously in this business, I think that's, that's the right approach. But do you worry that uh, readers, in my case, viewers, are getting inundated with this constant fact-checking and it kind of becomes noise? 
I think there is some of that problem. Um, I think of it as an avalanche problem. You know, Trump ha creates this avalanche of misinformation, uh, and so when we try to push back with an avalanche of information, sometimes people accuse us of being pedantic or boring or obsessed with his misstatements in a way that we weren't with other presidents. So there are issues here, um, but I just don't think that we we really have a choice. You know, if he is going to average nine false claims a day as he is this year in 2018, then we have to do, in my view, nine nine corrections a day. So, Brian, obviously other presidents have lied. Uh, Obama had the lie of the year once. Bush lied. Clinton lied. Um, is it just the volume that maybe makes Trump unique in terms of our coverage? It is the volume, and, and that is why we need more Daniel Dales, right? more fact-checkers who are, who are constantly pouring over the president's words. I think the volume of misleading statements is part of Trump's strategy. He tries to overwhelm folks uh, with so much noise that you don't know what the truth is. But I think it's notable that in polling, we see most Americans recognize that the president frequently misleads them. I think most Americans see through the strategy. Uh, it is a form of pollution, though. It's a form of information pollution. Lots and lots of pollution in the atmosphere. It makes all of us sick. And the only thing we can do as journalists is try to clean up the air, try to share accurate information. It makes us into this. It makes us look like we're adversaries of the president when, in fact, we're just trying to do our jobs. And what's, I think, most important, SE, is uh, a year from now, three years, five years, ten years from now, we keep doing this no matter who's in charge, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican. Right. We have to continue to be actively fact-checking. If any politician in the future produces as many of these misleading falsehood statements as Trump does. Well, and I want to get to, uh, in particular, the next two years in a second. You talk about adversarial. Some people would say that it's right, actually, that the press have an adversarial relationship with people in power, in particular, the most powerful person on the planet, the president of the United States, and that the media has not been adversarial enough here to date. What, I oftentimes that? hear that from international journalists, reporters yeah. in other countries who, in general, right. have had a more adversarial relationship with their governments. You look at how uh, British uh, prime ministers are questioned. You look at how it works in Australia and other countries. The more free the press is, the better. And I do think in some ways mm. the Trump administration has been a good thing for the press because it yeah. has encouraged a more adversarial relationship, not just with Trump, but with other politicians. Yeah. I think it's an improvement in some ways. Yeah, I, I talked to Glenn Greenwald about that uh, for t from time to a time, and, and he would agree that Trump has actually made us better. We've got a, a ways to go in the polling, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, Dan, uh, we're, we're already beginning our coverage of 2020, um, and with Trump's rallies, we, we basically already know what to expect from him. Should the press do anything different uh, in covering this election than it did in 2016, in your opinion? Yeah, there are a few things. One, I think uh, clearly the rallies should not be televised live unless there's some exceptional mm. circumstance, like he respond he's responding to a, a tragedy of some sort. Uh, just airing this president unfiltered, I think, is a disservice to the truth because these rally speeches and other speeches are so dishonest. Um, I think independent of that, uh, the media, uh, during the, the substantive part of his presidency and during the campaigning, um, needs to do a better job of challenging uh, lies and other false claims as soon as they're mm. uttered. Um, um, too often, it's still relegated to people like me or Glenn Kester at the Washington Post or Brian, you know, on, on a weekend show, rather than doing it in the heart of your news story, in the headline, um, and, and to treat dishonesty as a central story of the Trump campaign rather than some sort of sideshow. So in, in your story on the rally, you know, if he makes 20 or 25 false claims in the speech, 
to me, that's a big part of the story of that speech. And so I think telling people when he or whoever the Democratic candidate is is being exceptionally dishonest, I think should should always be an emphasis. Well, and Brian, we you and I have talked about this a lot. These um, hacks to covering Trump, not taking his rallies live. Mm -hmm. Some media outlets really wrestled with the idea of using the word lie to describe what uh, President Trump was saying. Have we really, though, figured out how to cover him, or are these just sort of tweaks? There has been a big evolution about using the word lie. Yeah. I think that's true, and I think that is because of the volume. You know, think back to Inauguration Day. One of my favorite Trump fibs is that he said it was sunny when it was actually raining on Inauguration Day. <laughs> Little now, things. I don't think that's a, a horrific lie. I do think some of his lies about voter fraud are horrific, though, and those are the ones we have to focus on. You know, not all lies are created equally. Uh, but with Trump, it often does come back to the lie, and I agree with Daniel that that is the story sometimes, uh, not just what he's saying, but why he's misleading the public. Uh, and, and I think we we do have to continue to zoom in on that. Let's also recognize, though, some of his half-truths, there's a truth in the half, right? Mm. What I mean is Trump's storytelling skills, the reason why he tells these elaborate stories that are fictions. There are reasons to that, and I think we have to almost bring on literary critics or TV critics to understand uh, sometimes why he's telling these stories and why the stories he tells are so appealing mm. to a portion of the population. Because, look, even if we don't show his rallies live, even if NBC, uh, MSNBC doesn't, and the broadcast networks ignore it, there's always going to be Fox News and other oh, yeah. conservative outlets that are going to show Trump's events live. Mm -hmm. They're going to show his every word. And his fans are going to continue to hear these misleading stories over and over again. So, Brian, let me just uh, finish by asking you about Democrats and Democratic candidates were anticipating a lot of them will run against <laughs> yeah. Trump in, in 2019 and 2020. I think, personally, the press is going to be, and should be, under a huge microscope in the way it covers those Democratic candidates. And I think it's going to be crucial that the press is as curious and critical and scrutinous of Democrats if the media wants to continue to build a trust between viewers and readers. What's your take? Yes, but we shouldn't draw a false equivalency. If a candidate, if one candidate says one wrong thing and another says 10 wrong things, we shouldn't treat those as equal. We should treat those as unequal and say it. But we do have to scrutinize all the candidates that come forward. We have to make sure that they are, uh, they are held accountable, both for what they say and also for their histories, so that we know who we are voting for. Most importantly, we just shouldn't assume anything. That's a lesson of 2016. Don't assume anything. As right. my mom taught me, it makes an ass of you and me, right? Just uh, don't assume we know anything about what's going to happen in this upcoming primary season. Yeah, and just like the Democratic Party itself, the press should let these candidates run and campaign uh, right. instead of predetermining who the winner is going to be or what the outcome is going to be. Exactly. That's good advice. Brian, Daniel, thanks so much for joining me. Great conversation. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, next I'll speak to a reformed neo-Nazi about the rising tide of hate in America, you won't want to miss it. Just two months ago in Pittsburgh, we witnessed the worst instance of anti-Semitic violence in U.S. history. And that type of violence has become tragically more frequent in recent years. Anti-Semitic hate crimes have seen a steady increase since 2015. According to the Anti-Defamation League, there were 1,986 reported anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. in 2017, a 57% increase from 2016, which itself had seen a 35% uptick. It's hard to separate those numbers from the increasingly rancorous tone of political discourse in this country 
and a president who's done little to distance himself from the hate-mongering of the right's political fringe. So what can we do to stop the rising tide of hate in this country? For more insight into this troubling trend, I spoke to founder of the Free Radicals Project, reformed white supremacist Christian Picciolini. He's the author of White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. At one time, Christian held beliefs similar to those held by the man who attacked Pittsburgh's Tree of Life congregation. I asked him what infects someone with that kind of hatred. Watch. You know, Essie, uh, I, th- I really think that the radicalization of people happens from the day that they're born. Uh, the ideology mm. is really just the final permission slip, uh, the driver's license, so to speak, mm. for them to go out and finally be able to act out on their frustrations or marginalization uh, or whatever else is broken inside of them. But I can mm. tell you that when somebody with power gives them words that back up what they believe, uh, spreads conspiracy theories, and gives them some sort of agency, there's a certain subsegment of these extremist groups that will act. Now, most extremists, you know, may just be extremists vocally and in ideological terms, but there is also a group of people within every extremist movement who will take action based on the words that they hear. And now that hate is becoming normalized, they feel very empowered. So, I mean, specifically President Trump's words, is that motivating people in white supremacist circles? Do they care? what the President of the United States says or doesn't say? Well, I think the optics are that, uh, you know, they probably don't want to support somebody who's in government, but everything that he's saying uh, is in line with their policies, with their beliefs. And we see white supremacists like David Duke who openly support uh, Donald Trump's policies. So, you know, all I have to do is point to the people who are the white supremacists uh, to to show you that they actually support uh, and believe what he says. I want you to listen to something that President Trump said uh, in the run-up to these midterms. Take a listen. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. Nationalist. Nothing else. Use that word. Use that word. What did you think when you heard that? I mean, it was uh, loud like a bullhorn to me. I didn't hear a dog whistle. Uh, and, and what I heard was his call to white nationalists saying that I'm behind you. And, and actually, since then, we've seen now four tragedies occur. Uh, we've had the pipe bombings. Uh, we've had the tragedy in Pittsburgh at the synagogue. Uh, in Louisville, or in Kentucky, we saw two African-Americans killed by a white supremacist. And there are yeah. reports today that the shooting in Florida uh, was actually uh, committed by uh, somebody who was far right-leaning, with white supremacist ideals, who's part of the involuntary celibate movement. So this is going to continue, uh, and and people need to be held accountable for their words. But it really does seem like there's been a significant uptick, not only in hate crime attacks, that we know, but also just the Mm. overt racism we've seen go viral lately. You know, uh, white people calling the police on minorities for living their lives, for having barbecues, going to stores. I I did a story on a guy who was called for babysitting kids, um, just going to vote. What do you attribute all of that to? Surely that's been going on since before President Trump came into power. 
Absolutely. We've you know, had a, an issue with white supremacy since our nation's founding. Uh, I think what's happening now is not only is there a resurgence and new people becoming involved in this movement, uh, but it's also emboldening the people who always had those beliefs to now be able to say them out loud. Uh, they're not hiding behind hoods anymore. They've gone from what I used to be wearing boots to now suits. Uh, right. And the conversation and the dialogue in our country has, has become so extreme that now these people who had hateful ideologies who were embarrassed of them maybe just a few years ago are not right. embarrassed to say them anymore. Right. So how do you reform people with this kind of hate filled in, in, their, in their hearts and minds? What do you do? You know, there are two things that, that haters love, and that's silence and violence. If we're silent, they grow, and if we're violent against them, they use that as a victim narrative. Uh, so what I do is I approach yeah. people with compassion and with cautious vulnerability, and I can tell you that for me, 23 years ago, the most powerful transformative thing was receiving compassion from the people I least deserved it from when wow. I least deserved it. So that's how I approach people who are in these groups, and I will introduce them to the people they think that they hate. It's really powerful, Christian. I'm really glad you joined me today to talk about this. Thank you, Essie. That's it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. I hope you've had a wonderful holiday. Have a happy new year. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.